Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. This is episode 134, and today I've got Dr. Dan Martin. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? I'm very well, Lauren. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm fine. These are, these are certainly interesting times that we're living through, and um, hopefully we can uh, help people get through some of their days stuck indoors with uh, some interesting chat about something that uh, I know that you're obviously very interested in, um, and I have developed an interest um, in this area, which, um, to not tease the listeners, is a continuation of a recent podcast I did. In fact, the last podcast, uh, episode 133, with Megan Bentley about dietary behavior change in athletes. And in that, we um, had a really, really interesting and fascinating conversation that sort of underpinned um, this area that I want to explore further. And I have other guest experts lined up over the coming weeks or so, weeks and months, to just really delve into this. And just to reiterate why I, I'm really interested in this is because a lot of us that are in sports science, sport and exercise, nutrition, um, you know, we, we, love, we, love, we love this topic for lots of reasons. We love the science. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing how it's developed and expanded over the years. Um, you know, uh, dare I sound really geeky and boring and whatever and say it's getting, it's gotten to be quite a sexy field, actually, sports nutrition. I, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty exciting, but it's very easy to get carried away with all the science and the theory. Um, and, uh, you know, something I always like to, to talk about, um, just because that was my own area of research, is, is fundamentally there is quite a significant gap between science and practice. Um, and there are numerous things that will, will influence, you know, the, the, that gap that exists between people who, who know about something or think they know about something and actually um, being able to, um, uh, you know, get a result. Um, and it's this getting the result thing when you're working in the type of field that we work in, where nutrition, um, you know, habits, behaviors is something that primarily they will do when you're not there. Um, it's not a pill to take. It's not a, you know, a physical therapy intervention where um, someone can apply some sort of manual therapy to you. This is something somebody's got to They've got to understand what they've got to do. They've got to believe in what they've got to do. And then they've got to, they've got to enact this because, as I mentioned in the last thing, um, nutritional strategies, just like many medical strategies, is highly dependent on compliance. Um, but of course, it's also dependent on understanding what it is that they're supposed to do, um, which is all, all really uh, at the core of this, this sort of area of behavior change um, and behavior change theories and, and so on. So folks should listen to, to that other podcast and the upcoming podcast. But the reason why I wanted to do more of these is because it is such a big area and it's such an interesting one. And um, you are a great example of someone who has developed this further, but into certain particular areas, um, such as um, looking at um, nutrition, behavior change, and developing a, a model for that, um, particularly in area, areas that um, would be akin to sort of weight making uh, and so on. Um, and there's many areas in there that, of course, um, I think our listeners will, will take a lot of interest in, whether it's in the combat sports or um, like in an area that you've 
spend a lot of time in, which is in jockeys, which reminds me of a lecture that Graham Close gave us on, on our program when I never even, I knew nothing about jockeys and it just blew my mind. And it's so interesting. So that's enough of me blagging on what, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself, Dan, and how, how did you get into this topic anyway? Oh, good, good question. Um, specifically the, the behavior change elements of it, um, sort of fell into it through, through the PhD. Me, me, me journey up to that point, I guess, is very conventional, normal undergrad and, and master's in sport exercise nutrition. Um, and when the opportunity came around to do the PhD at, at John Moore's, um, it was originally, yes, based in jockeys, but it was around education platform development. Um, and it was within the first 12 months of doing a lot of reading around previous education interventions in, in athletes I came across um, that behavior change models and behavior change interventions. Um, and the more I read around it, I, the more I realized that education alone is, is a rather ineffective implementation tool and strategy to, to change behavior. Um, and, it, and it all started from there, really. So the, I guess the first, the first year of the PhD, and, and here we are now. Yeah, I mean, and I'm really interested to dig deep into this, into actually... A really interesting area, um, which is this whole you know weight making, which I guess attached to that is all sorts of stuff with you know how people well the reasons why they're they're trying to make weight, which isn't necessarily for a sport. It might be because of um, you know the, the more clinical side of this would be people trying to um, alter their body composition or, or, or get to a certain number on the scale for reasons that might include um you know more more as i said more clinical reasons or you know uh, uh it's more to do um you know with how they feel people perceive them or what they think um they should be uh they should be achieving like that number on the scale that sort of thing um so let's let's just double back a bit then dan if you don't mind and just give us from your perspective an overview of what is meant by nutrition behavior change and um, you know, why is that relevant to the conversation that we're going to have? Yeah, I mean, ha highly relevant, <clears throat> probably for the main reason that I, that I just mentioned. Up until now, I think the majority of, of support and interventions from practitioners have been solely education-based. And whilst that has a place and it's an essential component of, um, of support and intervention, um, on its own yeah it's it's not that great and there needs to be more more around that and in terms of what what is behavior change i'm not sure if there's one um specific definition um but the one from the from the review that um susan mishy comes up with who, who mega mentioned in the previous um podcast they refer to it really as a coordinated set of activities that's designed to alter that specific behavior in in my sense in, in jockeys it's how they go about maintaining and making weight um, and again, d d different contexts, that behavior is um, specific to, to the different sports. Yeah, behavior, I, this is fascinating for reasons that, I mean, we all, we all elicit some sort of behavior and some of them are deep-seated behaviors that we've inherited through our upbringings, you know, uh, culture. I mean, this whole covid pandemic thing is going to massively change uh, some of our habits and behaviors i mean just look at 
you know, the whole social distancing thing. And, uh, you know, maybe um, in the same way that, um, you know, people are looking at that, that, you know, the, the people are going to start looking at how they interact with, with their food, their meals, the whole family setup is clearly going to be very interesting with this. So there's no doubt that, that behavior and behavior changes is, isn't just relevant to athletes, it's relevant to, to absolutely everywhere. Fundamentally, how do you see, you know, on the one side, because we talk about science to practice. So on the one side, you've got, um, and I've, you know, I've done a bit of sort of looking on PubMed and so on. There's quite a lot of stuff on behavior change theory. Um, but relatively speaking, not so much um, on the applied side of it. And in particular, definitely not <laughs> in sport and exercise nutrition, which is something that Megan, you know, and I discussed, you know, from your perspective, because obviously this is something you looked in um, for your PhD research. I mean, what, you know, what, what were your observations of that? And, and, and why did that convince you even more that you should look into, into this? Yeah, I mean, I guess really to echo exactly what you've, you've just said there, the, the theory is there, um, but the application, um, to my knowledge, it, it isn't there. Um, to my knowledge, there's only one case study um, done in, a, in like a young rugby league player that they've used it um, as a platform on which to um, design a nutrition intervention to try and gain some weight. Um, but beyond that, scaling that up to teams or, or sports, not so much at all. So when it came to me trying to um, develop um, some sort of intervention or some sort of support um, platform and embedding it within a behavior change theory, it was quite challenging to start off with thinking, where do we start? Because there's no pre-existing framework on which to do it. Um, things do exist in healthcare, so you're looking at, people trying to um, adhere to medication um, or getting young kids to try to be more, more physically active. But the, 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 the gap, the distance between the general population or, or young kids or the or primary care settings to that of, of professional athletes is a lot different. And then working across a, a lot of different sports, um, again, it, it's so, so different from a club environment where you've got 30 or 40 athletes down to or across to them working with, jockeys or fighters um or golfers for example that that work very independently and, it, and it's, it's silo provision um so although i'm or what i've tried to do is um i think be the first to do it on a, on a on a on a bigger scale um there's a lot more that needs to be done and and what i've done although i think i think it works um there's there's nothing to measure it against yet and it'd be great to see the um the both the, the research and the application of the research uh, develop over the coming years yeah that's, that's brilliant and i you know this is seriously valuable I, I know myself having been a practitioner for a long time and i remember uh when i made the transition from you know uh, oh, serious i mean listeners that have gone back years on this podcast will know more about my history you know i used to be i was a personal trainer got into alternative medicine all sorts of stuff but i was working with as a young lad, I can't believe I'm saying that back then. Now I'm uh, getting, getting very close to 50 now. But when I was in my early 20s, I was a PT, um, working with general population sort of people. And, it, and that was just largely about, you know, weight loss. Like they'd be training with you or getting nutrition advice. Because even back then, you know, in the front line, so to speak, PTs were still giving some sort of nutrition advice. 
Um, and that was a nightmare because they'd only train with you like once or twice a week, but they'd be drinking a bottle of wine every night and da 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 da, da, da. So it, it became immediately obvious to me that, you know, things like nutrition and behavior was a more powerful way of getting a result, which is why I ended up ultimately making the transition from being a personal trainer and S&C coach into retraining and, and becoming a, a nutritionist. But also the observation of just how different it was working with quotes unquote normal people, whatever that is, but normal people, general population and working with athletes. And when I started working in professional rugby, for example, um, and with boxers and so on, um, they actually did what I asked them to do for the most part. And I loved it. And actually I never looked back and that was 12, 15 years ago now that I started to make that transition. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is because, you know, if we, again, to quote, um, Graham Close and, and, and co on their um, paper to podium paper, the whole translational potential thing, which is music to my ears. That's the whole point of this podcast really um, is the evidence that exists out there, as you've already pointed out and we discussed with Megan is very much on general population um, and um, and what we're, what we're trying, those of us that are even taking an interest in behavior change, you know, we're still, if we're looking into, into the theory, into the science, we're still trying to apply something that is designed for a completely different set of people. And obviously that's why, you know, as you just said, you're one of the first people to have done that. But what I'm interested in is, is perhaps to try and think about well, what actually is the main difference between the two from a behavior change perspective. Um, and by that, I mean, like, for example, I said, you know, I'm, I ended up preferred working with elite and professional athletes because they actually listened to me more. That's an example, obviously, is they're taking it more seriously because their perspective on the outcome, um, you know, makes them more, more professional, if you like. Um, you, you know, is that something that, that you thought about in your own work or, or discovered along, along the way? I guess so. Uh, I mean, ultimately... Um, humans, uh, humans, whether they're, they're athletes or whether they're general pop. And so then I think it comes down to what makes the human tick. And mm. the, I think the one thing that a lot of um, athletes have is um, a phenomenal amount of motivation for one reason or another. Um, and when we draw on the, the behavior change model that we use, motivation is one of the key elements of it. And now what is the motive toward just for a general person to eat your five to seven fruit and veg a day? Um, we sell it on the basis that you'll have improved health or maintain your immune function, et cetera. Um, where does the motive for um, a professional athlete is to be the best in the world, the world number one, if it's an individual sport um, or team success and having the ownership or, or having the, the sense of being a, a part of a team, um, you don't want to let the side down by not pulling your weight. Um, so you're more likely to buy into those, um, you buy, buy into the instructions, I guess, or the coaching that, that we give as nutritionists. But then again, um, what the physios and, and the S&Cs are, are doing. So maybe the athletes have got, for one reason or another, um, more reason or more motivation to, to perform the desired behavior. Um, but as we know, that's only one part of, um, of the equation yeah and we, uh, we sort of briefly got into this with Megan in the last podcast and um, you talk about this in your paper that I read in advance of this conversation where 
and we see this across different sports, of course, but, you know, the danger um, can be, um, you know, your target audience not necessarily seeing in you as the practitioner um, enough, enough for them to want to buy into what you're saying. Um, and, you know, you talk about jockeys historically would maybe, you know, get, get their sort of, if you like, their sort of nutrition behavior advice from other jockeys, maybe the more successful ones. And I certainly would see that in the rugby clubs, you know, the, uh, the, the senior players, you know, the England players, that sort of thing were, were you know, the, um, the influencers, if you like. And hopefully they would be singing from the same hymn sheet <laughs> as me as the nutritionist, because if they're not, you've got a serious problem. Um, but the practitioner invariably can be a young, a, you know, a young, relatively or very freshly graduated practitioner where that in itself can be an issue where, you know, you might be working with, you know, boxers, rugby players or whatever, but you weren't a boxer or a rugby player yourself. Um, you know, it, it, because it's an essential part of that, that ability to work with an individual or, or with a team, you know, not just understanding the theory. And I, offline we briefly talked about this and i talk about you know the importance of having a toolbox as a practitioner um a quotes on quotes toolbox this proverbial toolbox that we pack with knowledge and tools um you know and we we, we need to we need to be careful about what we use and don't use and, and so on just just because we're on this topic from your perspective both from your own personal experience having worked a lot in this area but also from your your research um you know, we're, we're talking about theories, we're talking about an applied model and, and so on, but we're in the middle of that. Um, you know, from your perspective, what are, the, what are those important sort of factors or characteristics or the, or, or the degree of influence that we as the practitioner have on this situation that we should be mindful when we're looking and reading at the research and considering how we're going to apply this into practice? Yeah, really really good question really good point and and actually one of the key things that came out from actually talking to um both jockeys as athletes and the support the, the very close entourage and support network that they've got around them like their, their own circle of trust one of the key things that came up time and time again was that anyone that's going to give us advice as in as in athletes um if you're not a jockey you need to you need to understand racing and you need to respect the tradition of it. So when I first came into racing back in like 2014, I'd just, I just really finished playing just amateur rugby. And at the time I was like 102 kilos. I was going to say, you don't look like a jockey dad. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I've, yeah. I've tried, I've tried my best to learn. Um, and I've shed a few pounds, but, uh, yeah, don't, don't expect to see me racing anytime soon. Um, but yeah, I, I came through the doors like 102 kilos with no um, pedigree in racing or no, no history in racing. And so the first year, and probably first year to 18 months, was about just learning the industry and the traditions and how racing works and just doing a lot of listening and just a lot of yeah, pleasant conversations and, and building that, that trust. Seven years down the line, that's no longer a problem. Mm. Um, but it's certainly something that you need to... Uh, consider regardless of whether you're a young practitioner or not or whether if it's a sport or an industry that you're coming into um, and then going to the proverbial toolbox one thing that I try to have in my toolbox is some senior athletes that do sing from the same hymn sheet as, as I do 
Um, and because racing is so, um, so sparse geographically, we've got jockeys up in, um, in Scotland right the way down into the depth of Wales and, and, the, and the southwest country. Um, having senior role model jockeys who, who I know are good professionals and, and make weight correctly and, and look after themselves as professional athletes, um, getting them to do the messaging for you is quite often more powerful than me doing it myself. Um, so if you can, if you don't already have it, one of the key things that you can do is, is get senior athletes on, on board um, to, yeah, to, to do the, the communication and, um, and selling for you, I guess. Um, and whilst they'll need to know the limits of what they can recommend or not, again, equip them with the knowledge of, of the signposting. So if it goes beyond just a jockey to jockey conversation, um, they know their, their remit and their boundaries and where they can then um, send, the, yeah, send the other athletes on to, to get more professional advice if it's needed. Yeah, so it's, 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 well, I guess it's particularly for, for younger or less experienced practitioners, it can be like just in like it is in the real world, you know, you, you end up in a, in a situation with a person or people and you need to judge very carefully about where you are uh, uh, in that conversation, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, is it appropriate or not for you to make a comment or not? And I have to say for myself, actually some of the biggest inroads I've made was not talking about nutrition at all, just having a chat with someone you know, getting to a point where they actually do want to hear what you've got to say another time, another day. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I know because I made these mistakes myself and I, and speaking to younger practitioners and my students, you know, who are now out graduates who are now out there in the field is, is very much that, you know, hold back on, you know, the rocket science and, uh, and the strong desire that we have to help people. I mean, at the end of the day, we're doing this for a reason. It's not just interesting. It actually does help people as long as you, understand what you're doing and you know the limits of your knowledge and the toolbox and so on that, that we're talking about um but in that regard dan um just before people you know go well, hang on they're talking about jockeys they're talking about weight making you know this isn't just relevant to them though is it i mean we can broadly yes you'll we'll get into some specifics in this in this deeper into this chat but i think most importantly fundamentally at the very core of this it's relevant to almost everyone is that right Absolutely. And, and to be honest, since probably over the last 12 to 18 months, um, I basically, in effect, doing the work through the PhD and with the jockeys for me was my own pilot study, if you like. Um, and I've learned a lot from doing that. So even though the, 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 you know, the paper's been written and, and it sounds like it was um, a relative success, if you like. I've learned a hell of a lot from it, and I've been applying, well, adapting it and changing it for some different sports, um, and yeah, making it a part. If anything, probably the cornerstone of my my practice now across, yes, jockeys, but then within the the, the Olympic stuff within the football team, and, and and more recently within Formula One, that is now the the, the cornerstone really of, of how I operate, because there's only there's only so much knowledge you can ever impart in terms of their, don't get me wrong, very, very vital. And it's, and it's what we implement in terms of, you know, macronutrients and, and things like that. But it's, um, it's the art of the delivery, um, which I think makes, distinguishes good practitioners from not so good practitioners um, rather than just knowledge acquisition and, and who's, the, who's the cleverest. Because I'm far from 
the smartest um, bit, uh, performance nutritionist out there. Um, but I think by by or tapping into the the behaviour change science, I've become a much better practitioner off the back of that. Um, and that's why I think it's um, a very interesting and probably expanding area within nutrition as a whole. Well, yeah, and you make a very important point, which is one of my obsessions in this podcast is to, you know, to remind everyone that we need to differentiate science from practice. Pra- you know, science is, is an important component of practice, but it is not practice in itself. And actually, you, you made a comment there that I think, you know, we've sort of talked about this, but, you know, without naming it, but, you know, th- there is an art form to this and one's ability to deliver to um you know the presentation is incredibly important if you you know just little things like if 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 you just you know can't be bothered to make an effort in how you address and 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 present yourself as a professional um that doesn't look so good to the people that uh, you know you're trying to influence if if what you say is double dutch or you know rocket science again they're, they're like yeah that's interesting you know because you should know that but that doesn't mean i need to know that and in fact all they demonstrate is that they don't really know <laughs> what it is that you need to know so there's a you know there's a whole there's a whole lot in that in that whole science to practice sort of continuum but from a practitioner's perspective um you know what if you were to give them a, a quick 101 um and we sort of dipped into this with megan in the last podcast but if you could just give us a sort of a 101 by you know what is the behavior change will framework um that is relevant to practitioners because you know you've done a phd in this area um you know practitioners don't need to have that level of, of knowledge um but a working knowledge of, of of this um is obviously important a to understand papers and so on and podcasts about this topic um but also to give them a sort of a little a little bit of a framework to sink their teeth into as i know that they'll they'll develop more of a passion after listening to this and reading your work and megan's work and so on yeah sure and it's probably important to very briefly explain what the behavior change wheel is based on and that's the com b model which i know megan mentioned so very briefly if someone's going to perform a desired behavior, so making weight correctly or just eating optimally for for your sport, they require three things. They need to be capable of doing it. So that is, do they know what they should be eating and when in what quantities and do they have the required skills? So um, reading reading food labels, going shopping and and, and cooking, I guess are the the main three. Do they have the opportunity to perform the behavior? And the, the opportunity could be the environments that they're in. So again, sticking with jockeys, if I was to ring, not now because we're in, we're in lockdown, but on any normal day, if I were to ring any jockey at any given time, I can guarantee they'll be in one of four locations. They'll either be at home, at the yard where the horses are, so the horses are getting exercised. They'll either be in the car because they do a hell of a lot of driving to the races, or they'll be at the races. And so those four environments that they're in, if they're not geared up towards optimal nutrition, even if they know what they should be doing, if the environments don't facilitate it, it may break down. And then who's in those environments? Um, are they echoing what I'm saying? Or are they a little bit old school and perpetuating bad advice? Um, so you need the opportunity to be right as well as the capability. And then the third one is the motivation. And one part of that is, I guess, their, um, ref- we call it reflective motivation. So what are their inner beliefs around 
nutrition? Um, is it important to them? Do they genuinely believe it makes a difference to their their life as a whole? But then probably for athletes as well, their their performance. And then their impulsive uh, motivation. How do they react to winning? Do they, what, jockeys are bad because they, they celebrate it. Sorry, they compete every day. So when they win, do they always celebrate? And that means getting the, the champagne out. Let's hope not. Um, but when, how do they handle uh, losses? Um, do they fly off the handle, go home, um, get the beers out, um, binge eat? Um, and how can they, how can, can they control those, those impulses and, and emotions? That's just one example. Um, so that's the combi model. And then what the behavior change wheel is, is effectively a tool. So if you can identify, and what I do when I work one-to-one with an athlete, and this isn't this is my own tool that I've made is when we profile athletes, we often get them DEXA scanned and get them weighed and do the skin falls. I always do like a behavioral profiling as well, using some questions that I've developed to try and assess their capability, their opportunities, and their motives. Um, and wherever the gaps are, those are the areas that I need to help them in. Um, so there may be senior pros that heard it all before, so they know what they should be doing, um, but the big gap is in their opportunities or, or the motivations and this is where the behavior change wheel comes in it's effectively a tool to help you implement the correct um uh, techniques and strategies to bring the athletes to bring the athletes on um, so there's effectively nine functions um so which means you can basically uh, educate uh, the jockeys or the um, the athletes you can persuade them one way or another provide incentives you can coerce them um, by, I guess, creating negative consequences for, for doing um, the, the non-desired behavior. You can create a reward system, which is just the opposite. Um, again, you can change the environment. So th- there's a host of things. And um, whilst it's complex, just, just talking about it and just for listen to listen to, um, if you see the, the wheel itself and do a little bit of reading around it, you don't have to go super in-depth. Um, you, can, you can learn quite a lot in quite a short space of time. Brilliant. And yeah, I mean, obviously everyone needs to, I mean, read your paper, read the, the, the paper from the last podcast and just look around on this. Um, but let, let, let's, just, let's just put a bit of context to this because I have to say, as I mentioned, like I didn't really know much about jockeys. I've, I've definitely worked with athletes making weight, um, um, primarily in the combat sports and a bit of physique athletes, but this one just blew my mind. Um, and, you know, you, you, you could be forgiven, I guess, for, you know, you watch television or go to the live races and you see these, it's quite sort of, it appears to be a bit glamorous. You know, it's, it's a hell of a lot of people rocking up to an event that is really exciting. And, you know, the horses are impressive. You know, you do note that the, 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 the jockeys aren't the largest of characters and they can be colorful when you see them interviewed and, and so on. But, you know, that's it. They, they obviously successfully made weight. They got on the horse, did their race. They either won or didn't or whatever. You, you, you're, you're not ignorant of the fact that every now and then the horse falls or something, you know, something happens. But that's pretty much what we get left with. And then you've got the, you know, the, the interviews and the pundits who in themselves are quite colorful characters. And you sort of get lost in that. But having learned a bit more about it, as I said, I, you know, had, I was lucky to get a awesome lecture by professor graham close about this quite a few years ago now it was a jaw-dropping sort of understanding of what's going on so maybe you could just give us some context here about you know why this was necessary because as i said they've made weight so surely job done right they've made weight so why do we need to be 
influencing their behavior to do things differently. Um, and maybe we'll just be mindful that not everyone's into jockeys. Uh, you know, it might be anything from combat sports to, uh, to ballet dancers or something. But ultimately, this, this is a fantastic extreme example, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, um, correct. They made weight. If they, uh, if they got on the horse, that means they weighed. We call it weighing out because unlike fighters that just weigh in quite often the day before at the professional level, um, jockeys have to weigh out. So they make the weight get weighed about five minutes before they jump on the horse, complete the race, and then on the way back in, they then have to get re-weighed to make sure um, they stayed that weight through the race and the, the weight was true during competition. Um, so yes, it was a, in um, inverted commas, a success in, in making weight, but it's the methods of how they get there. And I just call it like a continuum or a spectrum of, of methods they use. At one end, at, the, at, very, at one very end, you've got, role model type um, jockeys that utilize diet and exercise to main, uh, yeah, maintain a competitive weight right the way through the year. But then you start to creep along it and there'll be some acute, um, acute weight loss through sweating and some of that will be through active dehydration. So they might go for a run around the, the, the race course. But then after that, it starts to get a little slightly more extreme. Um, a lot of sitting in like really hot baths and trust me most jockeys aren't scientists but they've, they've learned that if you cover your body in salt and then get in a hot bath you'll sweat at a much quicker rate um than if you're just sitting there um just going in dry i guess um and then at the, at the, re, at the other end of that spectrum it's really and you know i sort of refer to it quite often as like the dark art so laxative use and and self-induced vomiting which it goes without saying one it's disgusting and two there's some huge um potential ill health consequences that go hand in hand with that and if you do these things as a one-off you know nothing's going to happen but these guys are racing in excess of 300 days a year um and whilst not all of them do engage in self-induced vomiting and laxatives um the vast majority of them doing um engaging in um, in sweating one way or another and, the, and there's one story that i always tell about a, a young jockey that was on his way from the north of england down to the midlands um, and he had to lose like eight pounds on this particular day, which um, is quite a stretch, but it's at the same time, it's, it's quite routine for some jockeys. Um, so he, he would wake up and he would jump in the bath for, for an hour or so before heading out to the horses and riding them. Um, and he'd do that sort of rubbed up in, in multiple layers. Um, and then in the car, he was heading down and the wear sweatsuits in the car and the bang, the heat is on as high as they'll go. Um, get the heated seat on to try and again sweat a pound or two in the in the two-hour car journey. But he had his his pregnant girlfriend in the car next to him, and she started like getting really hot and, and uncomfortable. And she's like six months pregnant, and she's like saying, "We need to turn the heaters off. It's getting too hot." And and he was panicking because um, he's thinking, "I'm not going to make weight." Wow. Um, and he allowed it to in in the footwell. And again, this typifies a a jockey that doesn't do it well in the footwell of the passenger seat. There was a discarded like McDonald's bag. Um, and he allowed her to get the straw out of the out of the cup and wind the window down about half an inch and, and put the McDonald's straw through the window and, and breathe in some cold air. And that was her air conditioning because jockeys live and die by the scales. And yeah. if you get a reputation for missing weight, you quickly fall out of favor with owners and trainers. And whilst that story is you know, quite funny to hear for the first time that 
he was traveling at 70, 80 miles an hour down the motorway. And we know two or 3% dehydration impairs reaction time, decision-making, probably akin to drink driving in some ways. He had his, his pregnant girlfriend in the car. Um, but yeah, although a little bit of an extreme one-off story, these are, I'm sure there's many, many more that I'm not aware of that are, um, you know, exemplify how some jockeys operate because of the nature of the way the sport's set up racing 362 days of the year. Yeah, and you make, so you make an important point, which is something that, you know, we're, we're more and more familiar, obviously, in sport and exercise science and nutrition about the difference between weight um, on its own as opposed to weight when we also factor in body composition. And, you know, that's something that we put, you know, we, a major part of a nutrition, sports nutritionist role is going to be, you know, in the old days it was, yeah, just fueling and weight loss, but optimizing body composition is a huge thing that we get into. And, uh, you know, whether it's just for aesthetics like the physique lot and, or, um, you know, being a highly functional and effective athlete where body composition, you know, takes on more complexity. And this is a perfect example of that. And that's what I remember from that, sort of jaw-dropping experience from that lecture and, um, and from reading on this topic in your research and so on. If, if, we, if we just quickly talk about the consequences of not doing this right, just trying to you know, achieve that weight on the scale by these crazy um, self, you know, self, self-managed interventions largely, um, because you know, they still made weight, they still successfully got on that horse. So what is so wrong with that approach um, and why, you know, what is the incentive to do it this other way? You know, what are, what are the upsides, uh, the pros versus the cons? Yeah. What's the one thing that's really lacking is evidence within this specific population longitudinally. None of it exists. Um, and there's no other population in the world that's chronically dehydrated themselves day in, day out for 20 years. So even when you ask like the chief medical um, advisors within the industry, what's the long-term consequences of doing this? Even they've got the finger in the air a little bit because we've looked at jockeys who've done it for quite a long time and had them under the DEXA scanner, taken bloods from them, etc. And strangely enough, some of the markers are all fall well within normative values and you're left scratching your head a little bit and you're thinking, is, how is that so? And now, is it an adaptation that's taken place? Um, or is it not? And, and, it's, and so, it's, so it's really quite tough. I mean, common sense would tell you um, there's going to be health consequences from it. I think there's only been one study in Ireland that looked at a cohort of retired jockeys. Um, I think the average age was around 70 years old. And they're all sort of just blown up in size where the majority of them were um, overweight, stroke, obese. Um, but in terms of um, internal physiological illnesses, um, they were no different to any other random control group of 70-year-olds. Of mm. um, so it's quite hard from that one study to, to, to draw any conclusions from that. And that's why the, the next body of research that we're going to be undertaking um, will be to start some long-term longitudinal uh, data gathering um, 
of yeah, the, I guess the next generation of jockeys and track them right the way through their careers um, and into retirement um, and see if there's, well, tr try to answer that question in a very jockey specific way. Um, you could get into the um, discussion around reds and if they're always starving themselves, um, is, is that something to discuss? Um, are they going to suffer the long-term consequences of reds? One of his most recent papers that we put out from John Moores sort of suggested not within jockeys, because if you look at these guys with the tops off, you'd expect them to be shredded, um, like very, very little fat tissue. But they're not, I mean, some are, don't get me wrong, some of these guys are genuine athletes and treat themselves so, um, but some of them don't. And you're looking and some have got like 10 or 15 kilos of fat. Bearing in mind, they only weigh about 55 to 60 kilos. They, mm. they don't look like athletes. And then when you, again, when you do the bloods and the, the parameters are quite normal, they go through, basically through periods of extreme feast and then extreme famine. No, sorry, extreme famine and then extreme feast. Um, so I don't think they, they are suffering from, from reds. I think any long-term health consequences um, won't necessarily be from energy availability. Um, I think it'll be from giving the internal organs a, a hammering through dehydration and um, maybe digestive um, related issues if they are engaging in self-induced sure. things like that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it'll be fascinating. What an amazing cohort of subjects that, you know, have been doing this for so long. Um, might tell us something because you know one criticism of research particularly in sport and exercise sciences is we you know we might only look at six to 16 people over the course of a few weeks you know what does that really tell us over 20 years whole different ball game so if we if we look at if we readdress that question but from the perspective of right they're back on the horse right so you know they're alive they're functional they're 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 going to do their race for however long the race occurs for um, so we'll go back to what I said about body composition and how that relates to, um, being functional and effective. So this is where presumably the body composition is more relevant, i.e. a jockey with more body fat, but less muscle mass. Um, you know, there's, I don't know, but is there a disproportionate relationship there? Um, and the area that I that I suspect is perhaps the bigger area of concern is not even when they're on the horse, it's when they get thrown off the horse and the consequences of that. And are they robust enough to deal with that, um, even if they can survive a massive horse trampling all over them? You know, what are the consequences of that? Because how many times a year did you say these, these guys, 300 times a year? So I'm presumably they can't afford to be off um, in a hospital or laid up or whatever for any significant period of time. What, what, what about that angle? Yeah, um, just to finish off your last point there. So it's 362 days is the racing calendar. So huh. a busy jockey might race on 300 days and then on any given day, they may race five times. So wow. they're doing a heck of a lot of uh, competing. Um, so in terms of is the relationship between body composition and um, rate, I guess riding performance again there's no data to suggest it one way or the other um, and because it's it's late to the party in some senses is horse racing in terms of sports science research generally it's playing catch up a little bit and the first part's been all around the, the weight management and the nutrition and now we're transitioning into um, psychology and strength and conditioning based 
uh, research. So we'll gain to answer those questions, I guess, over the next few years. Um, anecdotally, so working very closely with um, a strength and conditioning coach that works in the industry, a guy called Danny Haig. Um, he's, he physically profiles all the jockeys. And the one thing that he finds um, the, a correlation between is like the um, isometric mid-thigh pull scores. And then if you have a look at A, how available are they to ride and how many winners to the ride, that might just be noise. It might be a just a, a correlation, but there's no there's no there's no causation in there. Um, but that's something that we would like to, yeah, I guess try and nail down again over the next year or so. But then, absolutely, with return in in terms of the nutrition and the strength in relation to injury, I think that's the that's the key one, and that's one of the key selling points um, for if we want to change behaviour. Um, one of the tools they can use is sort of coercion. Um, tell them about consequences of doing it wrong, or although we do it positively as well. Um, you can. There's so many examples we're able to draw upon real life jockey injuries um, that we can draw upon, and the likelihood of them falling off is 100%. It's it's a part of the job. It's going to happen, um, and yet they're not robust. Um, physically and a big part of that will come down to to the nutrition as well when they get slammed off the horse they're good, it's going to hurt a lot more and rather than it being a, a bruise it's going to be be a fracture and rather, rather than it being a day off work it's going to be potentially six to eight weeks and jockeys work on a self-employed basis um so at the minute because it's within within lockdown they aren't earning a penny um and the same goes during injury if they're not riding they're not earning Amazing. Yeah. So it's not really, it's not a question of if it's when, isn't it? Yeah. So this is a, uh, and I guess that's, that's a bit scary for, for people, but that brings us right back to, you know, the ability of the practitioner or whoever, you know, the other stakeholders in this to make it clear about what the consequences are and get that messaging through in, in the right way. So that, like you say, they're motivated to 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 actually do something about it so in terms of your research in this uh because we you know i want people to read your your work rather than us literally just go through it all but what what would be the main things then that that you found in your research and and from that you know what were the 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 sort of the, the main solutions that came out of that yeah um the i guess the the unique angle of of the research was developing an intervention that was grounded in com in the combi model or any behavior change theory that you might um, you know, might work for you and you can get your head around um, and bringing in the um, the support team around the jockeys so this wasn't a case of me um, developing an intervention in my own little silo um, concocting it and then rolling it out and seeing what happened um, we took very much a collaborative approach and when you're designing any product or yeah product let's call it and whether that's a new workstation desk if you're working for ikea or or whether it's a, an education platform for professional athletes or a behavior change platform for professional athletes if one person just designs it you won't and you design it you spend invest a lot of time effort potentially money getting it to the end stage the first time you're going to get feedback as to whether it works or not or whether it's usable or not is right at the end of that production line and then it doesn't work and you waste a lot of time 
Um, one way you can overcome that is develop a bit of a prototype or a pilot and get some feedback and make some amendments. But it might only be the little bits you can tweak. Whereas if you involve the end user at the very beginning, which is what we did, we used jockeys, jockey coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, um, us as, as researchers and practitioners, um, got them in a room or in, in a few different rooms across a couple of different days and asked them, how do we develop the capabilities of jockeys? Generally speaking, in terms of improving the diet and nutrition, how can we improve the opportunities in the environments that we know they're going to be in? And what would be the best ways to get them to do it or want to do it through improving the motivation? Um, so rather than me doing it, get the industry themselves and the athletes themselves to give me the answers. And then my role as the, either the practitioner or the researcher um, was then to take that information, map it to the, the theoretical model, which in this case was the combi model and the behavior change wheel, and develop an industry-specific or club-specific, depending on your context, um, intervention, which in theory, because you've included the end user at the very beginning, it should have legs when it comes to rolling it out. And thankfully, that's what I found there. So I mean, my take-home message is, um, if you're going to try and do something like this, find a model that works for you. Ask the people. Don't try to do it in isolation. Um, and, yet, and, and and roll it out and, and see what happens. Brilliant. So I think one thing the listeners, particularly the practitioners uh, that constitutes a pretty large sect of our listeners, will be wanting to get an idea of, of you know, if, if they could have a little window into um, your practice and sort of a consultation environment or a series of consultations, could you, I know this isn't, as easy to do in in a, in an audio because although you and I can see each other in a video and so on, but you know the people are just listening to this podcast. Can you give us a little bit of insight into how that might happen and you know just a little taster, if you like, of of, of what this might look like in a practice setting? Uh, certainly, and I'll add the the disclaimer is that I'm still developing it, I guess, and this is the first year I've run with it. And I've already identified some gaps that I need to address probably at the end of the of the season. Um, but it's still been a fantastic tool um, that, like I said earlier on, I think has improved my practice this year um, massively. So, yeah, if I'm going to profile an athlete or it's a one-to-one consultation, rather than doing the usual, I don't know, short format nutrition knowledge questionnaire, then let's do your skin folds or a DEXA if you've got access. Um, although I still do those things, um, a big part of it and possibly the biggest part of it is I have I just call it a guided conversation I've developed three or four questions that I designed to um, assess their capability so I'll ask some simple questions surrounding how do you rate your own nutrition knowledge have you worked with a nutritionist before um, what do you know and I might ask just one or two questions is like okay if we were to write everything down that you've eaten for the last two or three days and I said Lauren and I'd like you to um, I think you should improve your protein intake do you know what type of foods I'm talking about and see what see what they give me mm. um, and it allows you to identify what they know and what they don't know or any um, mishaps, any red herrings, um, anything like that. And we can develop that conversation through to um, what your cooking skills like, um, who does the cooking in your house, who does the shopping. So it transitions then into the, the opportunity and the environments. Um, 
Um, so you're asking questions around, and then you can also do a, get a little bit of feedback about the club environment. So you can say, um, what do you think to the food that we've got at the club? Or what do you think to the, the food that we've got at the race courses? How would you rate it one to 10? Um, why do you think it's this or why do you think it's that? Um, and it's basically a series of questions. I've got three or four questions for the capabilities or just to get an idea of the capabilities. Um, three or four questions to get a handle on what are their environments like, particularly the ones that are away from the control environments that we can control. Um, that's where it comes down to who's doing the shopping and the cooking and things like that. Um, and then your three or four questions to get a handle on what's the motivation like trying to get, um, and, and it's not done in a way whereas I've got a question, I want you to answer it. I've got a question, I want you to answer it. It's very much a, a very informal conversation. And one thing that I, and I don't think it's an art form, but I think people just forget it. And you mentioned it earlier is just that the humanistic approach, it doesn't have to be imparting knowledge all the time. It doesn't have to be um, super formal. Just have a conversation with them about anything. And quite often the, these consultations for me, the first 10 minutes, just, just chewing the fat, just talking general stuff, getting to trust me as a, as a, as a, as a person, getting to like me as a person to an extent. Um, and then they're more likely to give you a, a truthful answer and not just tell you what you want to hear. So once I've done that, um, I'd basically call it, it's a very simple, I guess, like a red, amber, green sort of scale. And what I've got then with a one from that one-to-one -one, um, profile, I guess, is what areas do they need support in? And um, if the if I've given them a, rated them as a green for the capability, they know they sort of know everything. They, they've been playing for ten years. They've heard this all before. And the ambers and the reds are more in the the opportunities in the the environments or the people that they're living with. Are they living with other athletes, particularly the young athletes, and the together the, that can be quite a destructive combination. Um, they're the areas where I will focus my time with that athlete. Um, so if you've got 30, 30 athletes to deal with, um, the next conversation I have with that one athlete, I can have a look at the profile that I did last time, and the conversation won't be to do anything to do with the areas where they've got a green in. It's going to be the areas um, where they've got an orange or, or, or a red, I guess. And I think that's important for the practitioner to stay relevant. Because if you come in, you don't have to be new to um, the industry, you could just be new to the club, but you're, you're telling athletes stuff that they've heard off the previous nutritionist and the previous nutritionist and they heard off the nutritionist at the previous club. Um, you just become another nutritionist that's telling you the same stuff that I've heard 15 times already over the last 15 seasons. Um, so I always want to make sure the next conversation I have is relevant to them and keeps them engaged. And I think by taking this approach at the very beginning um, helps you to do that. And finally, in terms of just time management, some of your senior pros, they may get greens across the board, whereas some of the, whether the senior or not, some of the other players maybe red flagging left, right and centre. And then that gives me a, a priority of my workload. And that's not to say the person with all the greens will never get any of the time again, because I'll keep that humanistic approach going, corridor conversations, just the normal human chats. And then if they've ever got anything, they can come and talk to me. But it'll be the guys that are red flagging and there's ambers everywhere. They're the people that I'm probably going to prioritise over the next few weeks or, or even this season. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a brilliant insight um dan uh, I, I i know everyone's gonna um not only benefit from that but they're gonna want to learn more um but what i love about that is the fact that it, you know it is there's 
I mean, look, we've had an hour's conversation. I had just over an hour with Megan and we've barely scratched, you know, the surface of the, of the theory. Mm. But like you say, and you inferred, you know, you might be doing this in a brief chat in a corridor um, in the changing room. So, you know, we bring everyone back to that proverbial toolbox. We just need to be mindful of, well, we're carrying it around with us, but we just need to know when and when not to uh, to, to to throw every tool <laughs> at the at, at, at our client. So, in order for someone to have some degree of competence in this, and obviously, you know, you got to practice these things. What, what, you know, people are going to be, oh, this is all great, but how, you know, how do I even get even just some basic, you know educational training or what i mean what given this is not an established thing yet in sport and exercise nutrition what you know what, what would you recommend we all do um uh, over and above obviously reading your work and and others you know how do we make excuse me make a start on this yeah i think from, from a practitioner's point of view i think at the minute that's the that's a million pound question because there's not that much in the specific context of sports science generally, let alone sports nutrition. Um, one resource, I mean, the, the Combine model and the behavior change wheel was developed by um, the research team down at um, University College London. And they've got their own um, um, behavior change institute um, website. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you, if, if you Google um, just like behavior change techniques and put like UCL in there, they've actually got a, a really good website and I'm pretty sure there's an app there as well that you can download. Um, and it gives you just some really good basic um, introductory um, information around the theory as a whole. But then it starts to go a bit deeper into some of the techniques that you can, you can implement. And you'll find, because there's, there's technically 93 different techniques um, yeah. you'll find that you think, you know, I'm doing 30 or 40 of these anyway. I just didn't know they were called that, mm -hmm. which is great. Um, but then the good thing is there's some things on there and you're thinking, never thought of that. I could mm -hmm. implement that. And there's some things on there and you'll think that won't work. No, not, not with these athletes anyway. Or you're thinking, I don't have the charisma to pull that one off or, or whatever. That's fine. If, if you, if you go there, identify what you're already doing. I found it reassuring that we're doing some of this stuff anyway, but then yeah. all of a sudden I'm thinking, flipping out there's like, there's another 50 or 60 things here that I've not really considered doing, or I didn't know it was a tool I could use or it would be effective. So I guess um, that'd be the first starting point would be to check out uh, UCL's um, yeah, behavior change techniques and, uh, and the behavior change centers on website. And the question you asked, that's when I started going right back to the beginning of the talk in that first year of PhD, I stumbled across, a couple of papers and I'm thinking I need to do more digging around this. And, um, that's where I started and, and yeah, it's gone from there really. But most of my reading has been around, um, primary healthcare, um, than it has been in sports science. Cause as we've said a couple of times, the, the work isn't there at the minute. And you've been doing a hell of a lot of trying this out in practice, haven't you? Which is where, where a lot of us learn stuff. Um, inevitably we all make mistakes and so on, but like you say, actually, yeah, having now had this conversation with you and previous one with Megan and having done some other work in this area, you start to realize, oh, okay, I've been doing some of this stuff already. I think actually it's quite helpful to just have at the front of mind what we're actually trying to do and why we're trying to do it. And this, you know, however complex human beings are and what differentiates a, a clinical situation from a, 
you know, uh, an individual elite athlete to a team scenario is, as you say, um, and I like to say frequently is, yeah, yeah, but they're all humans. And, um, and there's something there that, that is, you know, is common to all of them, of course. And um, I think you've, you've managed to unpack a lot of that in this, in this conversation. And um, um, I know everyone um, will benefit as much as I know I have from this conversation with you, Dan. So I'd like to, to sort of end this by saying thank you very much for, for your time. It's been amazing. Clearly, you're still near the you know, the start line of, of this journey. And um, I'm, I'm getting from this that your, your interest and passion for this will continue to go on you know, further, further down the track, so to speak. So I'm looking forward to having you back at some point when you've learned more and can help share, share that with us um, so that people can share that journey with you um, over and above the fact that I obviously will tag you in, you know, when I publish this podcast and link to your paper that we've discussed. Um, is, it, not, is it published yet, that one? Um, no, it's in the very, very final stages of preparation. So That's we're fine. Just around with some of the stats. Um, but... I'll update. I'll update. It, okay, so folks, it, it may not be there when you check, but it, I will update it as and when it's available, and we'll link to your, you know, um, Google Scholar and um, ResearchGate and so on. Um, but you know, things like social media, can they follow you uh, on that? And if so, how's the best way to uh, to stalk you, Dan? Yeah, um, yeah. I try to be reasonably active on on Twitter. Um, so it's nice and catchy. It's just at Nutrition Dan. Um, and yeah, if you've got any specific queries, obviously you can, you can direct message me there or uh, you can send me an email. So it's just my initials, which is dm at nutritiondan.com. Brilliant, Dan. Thank you. You've been a star. Um, it's what I love about doing these podcasts. Although a lot of people are listening in, I feel like I've just seriously upgraded my knowledge on this topic from an expert such as yourself so i do really appreciate it especially during these weird times um being locked in and quarantined um where we're you know trying to embrace some enforced behavior change you know there will be light at the end of the tunnel and we can get out there and start to implement this stuff into the real world so thank you um so yeah if uh, you know to to catch up on um for example, the last podcast that uh, I referred to, episode 133 with Megan Mentley on dietary behavior change in athletes, do listen to that. And all our other podcasts, as well as our other outputs and our um, advanced practitioner-orientated training programs in sport and exercise nutrition, just check everything we do uh, and our new YouTube channel as well, actually, in science to practice focused um, videos at uh, www.theiopn.com, social media at theiopn.com. Um, I am Lauren Bannock. I look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon.